My loves, I don't know if you're like me or many of my friends or the, a lot of the people that I know, but listen, do you have a cabinet in your kitchen that's packed with supplements and all these amazing things? They're all there to support your overall health, to boost your gut, to boost your vitality, but you ended up being like too overwhelmed to even like look at it and create a routine with them that you're like just ended up skipping taking your supplements. I've been there too, honey. And this is why I want to take a moment to share an incredible discovery with you, my darling. It's called AG1. And let me tell you, it's been a game changer for me. And how I noticed that it was a big game changer for me was when me and my dad were, do were, we were doing that grief walk from uh, friends through Spain. And I got to tell you, the food was delicious, but it wasn't the best for my gut. But how I kept the gut going, how I kept boosting my vitality throughout the walk was every morning I would put a pack, a packet of the AG1 into a water bottle and I would shake it up and I would drink it. Even my dad, who's always like, here, dad, here, this is good for you. He's like, no, thanks. And granted, you know, the homie's got, you know, he's doing really well um, health-wise. And, but he's always like, nope. But with this, with AG1, he was like, okay, give me some. And he would take it. And it's, there is, it's, it's amazing when you take something, uh, you know, with routine and you start to see the results. It's like, okay, fine. I found my thing. Especially because it's just one serving that has the most straightforward way and simplest way for you to get your vitamins and your nutrients and your minerals and your prebiotics and probiotics. And honestly, why take a bunch of different things when you can just get um, all of it in, in one scoop of this delicious magic AG1 powder? into a glass of water or into the beautiful uh, water bottle that you get. This is how I start my days, honey. And honestly, if you're a traveler, they also uh, will send you, you could also get the AG1 travel packs and they're amazing. And, and every time I have a friend that comes over to the house, I'm always like, here, take a couple of these and try it out for yourself, you know? And I want to share an amazing, exclusive, delicious offer with you today. If you want to take ownership of your health, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com backslash sa. So that's drinkag1number1.com backslash sa. Um, you got that. And if you don't go to the show notes, it's there. And cheers to your health and your vitality. Hey, my love, listen real quick. I hope you're enjoying the podcast as much as we love creating it for you. And if you find value in what we're doing and you want to show some appreciation, we have two simple ways for you to contribute. The first one is by buying us a coffee. It's a one-time donation that goes a long way in helping us cover production costs, equipment upgrades, and other podcast-related expenses. Every cup of coffee makes a significant impact in our ability to keep delivering the quality content that you love. The second option is for you to become a monthly supporter by buying us a coffee on a reoccurring basis. By setting up a monthly donation, you become an integral part of our podcast sustainability. And we get to continue to create the content you love with confidence, knowing that we have a reliable source of funding coming in. 
And we love you for that. Listen, head over to the show notes and click the link there or go to buymeacoffee.com backslash spiritually sassy show. Again, that's buymeacoffee.com backslash spiritually sassy show. And I just want to say thank you so much to all of you who have already been buying us a coffee. We love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Your generosity is so wonderful. And we're incredibly grateful for your support. Hello, my loves, and welcome back to the Spiritually Sassy Podcast, where we are redefining what it means to be spiritual in the modern world. I'm your host, Sade Simone, and listen, today's episode is a little different. This episode, this hour of deliciousness, of inspiration, of mind-blowing wisdom, I got to give myself the credit because that shit was lit. Listen, this hour-long experience that I'm about to bring you, you into was recorded live as part of a two and a half hour Dharma workshop that I did for the members of the Somatic Activated Healing Membership. If you're not a member yet, maybe this will spike you, inspire you, spike you. I don't think that we want to be spiked, but this will, it will inspire you to maybe want to join our community. In any case, if you're like enough, I don't want to talk about no community right now. I just want to get into the episode. That's fine. Let me talk to you about this, what this episode's about. This episode is from my grief walk that I did with my father. We needed a time to fall apart. We needed a time to be with the grief. And in this uh, Dharma workshop that you're about to start listening to, I shared the main lessons that I've had, uh, the insights, the realizations that I've had during this long walk, we walked for 500 miles from France through Spain. It was about five to seven hours a day of walking. And there's so many deep lessons that came from that. And I hope they will inspire you too. Anyways, I love you. Enjoy this episode. And if you love it, don't forget to let other people know, honey, sharing is caring. Peace. What's up, my loves? And welcome to today's Dharma workshop where we're going to be discussing the 500 mile grief walk that I took with my father, um, May through June of, uh, 2023. This is about, uh, less than six months later, um, after my mother's death. And I'm going to try to give you guys a list of all the things that were like big realizations that came through. But because now that you've been hearing me talk for a while, if you've been sitting with me and practice with me for a while, you know that sometimes I go off on these like, you know, wild places. And then I find my way back uh, sometimes gracefully. Sometimes I'm like, Oh shit, I didn't talk about this. So it might happen like that. The way that I have put together the topics for today during the walk, I kept my uh, <clears throat> my recorder with me on my phone. It's an app. And I would record anytime I had a realization, I would pull out my phone and record the, the lesson, the blessing, the insight, the realization as it was, um, as it had just happened. 
Um, as it had just happened, let me rephrase that as I had integrated what happened, because as it's happening, oftentimes we are not in the in the um, we're still like, you know, we're still trying to make sense of it. And sometimes making sense of it isn't a realization because the intellect is still taking over. And when it's a realization, it overrides the, our intellectual capacity. It overrides everything we, we know. That's what a, a realization is, something that overrides our conditioned, intellectual, socialized, limited mind. So realization goes to a next stage. And I like to just say this because I want you all to understand what a mystic is and what the path of mysticism is. It's not a path of blind faith. Uh, to be a mystic, to call yourself a mystic is someone who is um, understanding spirituality through direct revelation. It's you can study, you can read, you can listen, um, you could practice. And the entire game of the mystic is to have direct realization. Through direct realizations, you know what the next stage of your evolution you know the direction to go into. It's a difference between other traditions that kind of impose blind faith, that impose that you must believe this. Um, and unless you believe in this, you won't, you can't participate in this doctrine. You can't participate in this group. And I have this back and forth a lot with um with my counterparts um and my um my chaplaincy uh, program at the hospital here in Los Angeles and um it's beautiful it's this ongoing theological discussion and i feel really um secure in my spiritual path because everything that i share with you guys hasn't come from blind faith has truly come from lived experience from direct revelation so i feel um unwavering I feel unshakable in my beliefs, so much so that I um, had a really unfortunate uh, experience with one of my teachers that I have revered very deeply. I was explaining to her that I didn't want my mom to return to earth. I didn't want her to have to do this all over again. And I would much rather have her be resting in a celestial plane. I would much rather have her be um in a beautiful garden, like a lot of the, the the people describe heaven as a beautiful garden. And, or, a, you know, there's many ways, there's so many, there's so many views of what heaven is or what these celestial planes are in Buddhism. There are multiple celestial planes as well. But you have to have been an enlightened being. You have to have had some degree of massive realization to get the entry ticket to those realms. I believe my mom is worthy of that. I believe she had the merit um, because my merit is her merit. My sister's merit is her merit. My brother's merit is her merit. And shit, we be fucking accumulating some fucking merit, helping people. We got to be honest about that. So all the good that we do is her good too. So you, one would think that she's in a celestial plane and then more practitioners were more fixated on the view that unless you've had um, you know, these samsaric um, eradication realizations, which means you've transcended, you've transcended the, the, the delusions of this plane, the amnesia that were separate, the amnesia 
that we resist change as a way to be happy, all those layers, right? And to say that she had those, um, I, 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 her realizations were different. Her realizations were like unconditional love, was genuine, unwavering, unstruck kindness and care. So all this to say is that who is to say that she's in a celestial realm and who is to say that she is reincarnated here and she's being born right now. We're coming up to uh, October of 2023 and, or, uh, you know, it's, this is the time, right? So in Buddhism, we say that there's 49 days after someone um, that dies. And it's after those 49 days that they, um, that they are, um, after 49 days, they, after 49 days, they reincarnate. During those 49 days, they're walking through the bardo. For them, it feels like a, a few steps in a scary-ass hallway, right? Um, but for us, counting in our linear understanding of time, it takes 49 days. There's a, a lot of scriptures who talk about this. There's a lot of uh, literature and canonical texts across a lot of the Buddhist um, uh faith. And after those 49 days, we did go to the ocean and we did do a prayer for her and we did send, uh, you know, put flowers in the, in the, in the ocean and we, we chanted and we, we, we were just ushering her to, I think individually, we all had different intentions. It was me, my ex-boyfriend, my father, my brother, my sister, um, me and my sister share a very similar view and, but everybody else might've had a different intention. And I was like so focused on her being a celestial realm that I wasn't really interested in what anyone else had to say at that point. Um, I, I'm saying all this just to paint, paint a picture and to kind of go back to what I was talking about, direct realization, being a mystic. I, I'm painting, giving you all these insights, right, to for you to understand. And, and now tracing to this meeting that I had, this unfortunate meeting that I had with one of my uh, teachers in New York City, um, she was saying to me that you cannot um, share with the world as a Buddhist with the influence that you have, that you still have doubt that your mom is reincarnated here, uh, that you she's either in this plane or she's here. And because I didn't have direct realization of that, I didn't feel like sharing something that wasn't truth. Are we following? You know, so she was very furious about it. And I was really taken back by like, wow, like you want me to tell my students and my community that I know that my mom is reincarnated here and her birthday's happening now, October, 2023. She's back on earth. She's a little, she's, you know, being born in some hospital across the world somewhere. We have no idea. I just didn't feel like entertaining that and telling a story that wasn't direct, that I didn't have, I haven't touched as direct realization. Are we following here? You know, so I, I rather stay in mystery. I rather not know. I rather feel my mom in the hummingbird. I rather see my mom when I'm talking to Andrea Lewis, when I'm going down to, to the rehab center in San Diego, as I'm opening the window and Andrea's there with a loving motherly energy, like giving me a flower. And, you know, I rather see my mom in the patients at the hospital. I rather see my mom in the case manager at the homeless shelter. Um, so it's almost like she is, um, 
omnipresent now that she's everywhere. And, and at the same time, I also just want to know that she's like, you know, walking on a beautiful green field somewhere that the weather's always sunny and it's always like a spring morning, you know? Um, so I'm just inviting you into a very honest process, you know? And when I did talk to a medium two weeks, two weeks, no, two months after my mother died, um, everyone recommended not talking to a medium then because it's too soon. But, you know, I don't do anything about the book, bitch. So I was like, I'm talking to my mom now. I need a fucking answer. What the fuck is happening? Are you okay? And what I heard was very clear that she's okay. And then I did ask, where are you? And she says, you will understand later. You understand later. And of course, I was like wailing and sobbing and snots coming down my nose. And I'm like in that state, please tell me, like, give me something else to hold on to. And she didn't. She was very skillful in her delivery. And, and then yesterday, I was recording a podcast episode with Sean Korn, who is a legendary yoga teacher. Um, and she was explaining to me that she spoke to her father and he explained to her where he is. And it was very fascinating. I'll let you listen to the episode when it comes out. Um, and it was just really beautiful. This, uh, how can we understand the world of formlessness when we are in form? Are we following? How can we give words to wordlessness? How can we give label to labelless, label, labellessness? How can we speak about the ephemeral, the, sub, the sublime, the celestial, when we ourselves are so far, perhaps not in this group, perhaps not the listeners, let's be honest about ourselves, bitch. We are, we are more free than the average motherfucker, okay? Let me take that back. That is the truth. We have to put ourselves, we have to be responsible for our mistakes and our shit, and our shadow, and we also have to be responsible for how realized we are. So that's where we're at, you know, so naming that. So it was um, a very um, interesting back and forth in that podcast, and just listening to that, her explaining how she heard the formless, and, you know, moving from how she heard it, through how she processed it, to then how I heard it, to then how I processed it, to now how I'm telling you all about it, and to how you are now processing. How can we give words to heaven? You know, how do we give language to the celestial realm? So, okay, that was a long preface. There was a long introduction here. Um, why did I decide to go on the walk? Because the, the uttermost blinding truth is, is that I had become numb. And I know there's a season in grief that you kind of enter into this numbness and it's part of the process. And it's not that I wanted to, it's not that I wanted to move through it quick, quicker. It's not that I wanted to end it. No, I just wanted to know that I was still deeply in it. And the numbness to me the way I have been socialized to process numbness, it felt, it led me to a state of confusion. And this is the, the edgy part, okay? 
And the confusion led me to led me to stories that I had battled with um, from a very young age. I had a cousin of mine who would tell me all the time, you're adopted, you're adopted. Because I, if you've met my family and you hung out with them, everyone is on the whiter skin tone. They all pass as white and I, and I'm, I pass as brown. People translate me as this like exotic person and they can't place my ethnicity. You know, I can be Israeli. I could be Italian. I could be Egyptian. I could be Lebanese. I could be Indian. I could be Filipino. I've even been called Filipino. Um, and I'm fine with all of it. Give me all of it. I'd rather be, um, I'd rather be seen as someone who is part of all nations. Um, and that was like a burdening thing for me. I was like, am I adopted? I was like, mom, show me photos of me as a baby. And she would show me photos. And there was this like weird disconnect. There was this like massive disconnect. And then when I started to like um, have moments of awakening and there weren't like the realization in sight, there were just like moments of me like actually being aware of the stories that were moving through my mind and aware of the feelings that were moving through my body. I would be on like a Sunday afternoon when we are, you know, eating popcorn and, and drinking chocolate milk. It's what we did in Brazil. I don't know if wherever you are in the world, you drink chocolate milk blended cold with popcorn. It's what we did. And we're watching TV in the afternoon. And I would like have this jolt of like such a disconnect from them. And I, I sort of took that as truth. I believe that those feelings were the truth that like, I feel so disconnected from you all because I'm not part of this lineage. I'm not, we're not blood relatives. We don't share um, that kind of intimate um, genetic makeup. And if I trace back, you know, in Buddhism, we're always not meant to ever ask, why do I feel the way I feel? Why do I think these stories? It's always like, how do I set myself free right here, right now from the story? But if we're doing a little bit of psychoanalysis, we can trace back to that moment where my beloved cousin at a very young age would say, you're adopted. And then most of you already know this part of my story, but my, um, my grandmother my mother's mom had a son with a dark skin man before she married my grandfather. And when she married my grandfather, my grandfather unfortunately had um, toxic, violent, awful traits of racism. And because of that, he didn't allow Uncle Orlando, my mother's first son, to hang out around the family because he was dark skinned. Fast forward um, a little later, Orlando dies of a skin disease. Then my my um Orlando was, I don't know the age, but when Orlando was around, my mom, my grandmother had a son um with my grandfather. And then this uncle uh, who's still around, poor thing, goes through such deep, deep difficulties, psychological, emotional, physical. His life is, is there's so much burdening. It's so difficult. Um, 
He's a lovely person and goes through such the deep difficulty. Um, Orlando dies when he's 27, 28. And, and then my grandmother has other kids. Da, da, da. My mom is the, the youngest. Fast forward to when, when my mom is 11 years old, uh, my grandmother kills herself. And some of the stories that run in a family is that she killed herself because of the guilt that she felt that she couldn't care for her dark skinned uh, baby in the ways that she wanted, in the ways that were natural and organic for her. Are we following? Are you tracking? So because that is in my lineage, because that kind of skin related uh, uh the way someone sees you because of your skin color as bad or something to be ashamed of because that is in my lineage, it's in me. And because what's in your lineage is in you, some things gets exacerbated, some things get blown up in specific people. My siblings have different kinds of uh, neurosis, different kinds of tendencies, different kinds of, of you know, qualities and traits, they're different than mine. And so in my process that we call SA, that curriculum that Uncle Orlando lived through is something that is has been deeply alive in me, okay? <clears throat> and something that I have worked through and realized and transformed and, you know, you name it, all that. So now let me get a little linear here. The reason why I'm, I'm giving you this backstory is because when the grief had arrived at a, a numbing state, those stories came back up. Everything that I just shared with you it was like, oh, is this my family? Did my mom love me? Were those photos real? Um, were they, was this another baby? Am I that baby? I could look at those photos and I don't know how it is for you guys, but when you look at a photo of yourself as a baby, do you see yourself in that baby? You know, I see my eyes and I see my smile, but it, it's something that has come through deep unlayering, deep realization, deep decolonization of my psyche, you know, uh, deep unraveling of my neurosis. And um, so all that came up during that time you know, uh, before going on that walk, I was like, what is happening? I feel like I'm, I feel like, did my mom love me? Did she exist? Did I make this up? It, it kind of got a little Delulu, you know, and not the cute Delulu that we practice here, but the Delulu that you're like, shit, girl, like what's happening? And my therapist was very honest. This is natural. You just gone through a traumatic experience. It wasn't that your mother died only that it was the experience that you've had in the hospital with her death while she was dying that was where it brought the the the, the trauma into the capital t status right so i said i know better than to stay in a story i fucking know better than to stay in a story bitch so what am i going to do i'm going to do a somatic somatic practice. And what does that look like? I'm going to walk because walking heals. Across every world tradition, we know that there's always a wild mystic who goes on these crazy walks that the realization comes from walking, that deep, long walks, walking with intention can bring about realization. 
So that was the intent. That was like why I'm I was setting on this on uh, driven to go on that walk. And going on the walk, I mean, just a little funny side note. I had said initially, "Oh, Dad, let's go hike Everest Base Camp. Uh, let's go to Nepal. I'll, I'll show you my." Um, the monastery where I have transformed my life so much, where me and my sister have spent um, countless hours meditating here. And I'll show you a little bit of Nepal, Kathmandu. I'll bring you to, you know, to the area and then we can hike Everest Base Camp. He immediately said no. And I was like, okay. And I was like, I'm still going. I'm doing this for myself. I need to walk and be with myself, be in my body. And I said, you know, there's another walk, there's another hike, there's another like pilgrimage style um, path that I wanted to take for a long time, which is El Camino de Santiago. So that's the pilgrimage that we did. Um, I won't share the the mystical, uh, you know, I won't share the mystical. Um, there's so many ways that people see that walk, you know, and there's so many different, and because I'm not Catholic, um, I don't want to like overstep and share what I know about it. So if you're curious about it, go on YouTube, look up El Camino de Santiago, the meaning of it. Um, in short, we walk to arrive at St. James, uh, cryptic in, in Santiago. And there's 32 days that it takes if you walk um, for about like five to seven hours a day with like a one hour lunch break. And when we arrived at the walk, I really quickly saw that I was going to have to do this work um, in a whole new way because these people that were on the walk with me, um, that were fellow pilgrims that were staying at similar hotels that you would meet in the mornings and in afternoons, in the evening at the restaurants, we were, we were the vast majority of them. And don't let this, what I'm telling you, clutter your view and withhold, hold you back from actually going on this walk. Okay. But I'm just going to be radically honest with you guys. Um, a lot of the people there were there sort of like a marathon, you know, they were, they had trained and got the right shoes and done the, all the physical things uh, to be able to walk that length. And, and they would wake up at like five in the morning so they could get to their next destination by noon. And they would drink a bottle of wine at night. And no shame in the game. Do your thing, honey. Been there too. Remember, I smoked crack when I was 14. I know the look. I know trauma response with drugs and alcohol very well. I'm very versed in that world. Um, it's just a different kind of uh, awakefulness and lucidity that I'm looking forward in my life. And that I'm living and practicing and observing regularly. Fucking hard, but also I'm just resting in sobriety now in a whole new way. So I really quickly saw that it was going to be a thing that I had to like make these very, very clear adjustments. I don't want to be, um, I don't want to have breakfast with other people. And I don't want to have dinner with other people. I know a lot of people are going on this walk to make friends, but I really quickly realized that I wasn't there to make any friends. I wasn't there to uh, to speak, to talk. I was there to feel and reflect, 
you know, which was very different from a lot of people and very different than the experience that my dad wanted to have. He wanted to be social. He wanted to engage. He wanted to talk. He wanted to meet new people. He wanted to take photos with other people. And I was just like, so turned off by all of it. I was like, nope, I don't want any of that. So you can do it in a variety of different ways. You could do it as like a uh, you know, getting to know the countryside of Spain and you're drinking different kinds of wines and eating different kinds of food and meeting locals. And there's all of that too. Um, and there is the psycho-spiritual, deeply mystical side of it, which is entering these um, cathedrals and churches and small little chapels throughout the walk and sitting in that and feeling the weight of, thousands of pilgrims with a similar intention from the one that I walked with to heal, to get to know God, to get to know the truth, to forgive, to grieve. A lot of people walk this walk to grieve. You know, it's it's a deep practice for a lot of people. And for that reason. So when you enter the chapel with that depth of these small churches, these massive cathedrals with, with this depth of presence it's it's an immediate unraveling that takes place you immediately um you immediately relax into the grief you immediately relax into deep tears you immediately relax into um, a sorrow a pain um a longing, that's the word I was looking for. You immediately relax into the deep longing. And that's what I wanted it, you know, was that. And now, with all this, with context, now that I've given you guys enough of a, of a um, understanding of like why and all of this backstory, I'm going to start going over my list of of things that came up for me, Okay. And, um, yeah, I hope you enjoy learning about what it's like to be, to be in my body, to be in my experience of, of being human. Um, really quickly, I realized, um, that my dad loved me in an unconditional way that I have never really given him credit for. I was baffled by the way he he loves me. It was really um, eye-opening, you know, and it was subtle because he doesn't say the word I love you. He said it maybe five times. Um, and the subtlety of it actually had such massive weight now during this walk. Don't come for me in the morning if I haven't meditated, had my breakfast, journaled, got back into this body in a deep, meaningful way. Do not start chatterboxing me. Do not start planning the day. Do not start planning the next few days. Do not try to book the next hotels. Do not try to put me in a table with a bunch of fucking strangers. Don't. The bitch cannot. She will not. Je cannot, honey. I, I do not perceive me as a process, as an experience before nine in the morning. I do not exist. Please know that it's for your own benefit. Okay. Definitely for my benefit. <laughs> um, and 
there were times when I would be in that crunchy state of like coming back into my body and landing and like realizing that I'm in this body. I'm living this life. My mom is dead. Oh my goodness. I have all this responsibility. Wow, 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 wow. And all this is clicking in. All this is locking in. I'm realizing all this. And at first it's, it's a jolt and like, what the fuck is even happening? And then I'm like, okay, cool. I could do this. But in that process, um, I could be, I could be uh, snappy. I could come for you, bitch. And it's not like, you know, it's not like a cruel, but it's got a texture of sass, you know? And my dad's way of relating to that was mind blowing. It's not that he was like a, um, you know, just like, you know, dump your shit on me and it's fine. No, there was skillful means. That's the language I want you to remember. There was skillful means. There was right relation. There was a choice that he would make. Sometimes he would stay in a room because I needed to just talk out loud what was like coming up for me. Sometimes you meet me downstairs. Sometimes you order my cappuccino. Sometimes you order my ham and cheese sandwich. Sometimes he would start the walk ahead and say, I'll meet you in the next town. He knew how to do all of that. And that takes someone who's deeply anchored in their body, deeply obeying by the karmic law of right relation, of skillful means. Are we communicating? Because if you don't have the flexibility to know how to love someone, you want them to respond to you in how you want them to respond to you. You know, you want, you have a very specific outcome in mind. That is not what he had ever. He would hear the state that I was in. He would hang out with me in that moment and really quickly digest and metabolize what the next right action was. Sometimes it was to meet me, you know, five or seven or 10 miles later, which meant multiple hours. And he would wait for me at lunch at noon when we had started walking at nine with a huge smile, you know, and that was so beautiful to be deeply physically exhausted and had gone through such a deep emotional process inside of me. And then arrive at this, the only little cafe in the middle of this village, in the middle of the mountains, in the middle of the forest, nothing else around, and him with this big smile, so happy to see me. These points of contact were all done without a desired outcome. That is unconditional love, you know? So that's the first lesson is knowing that unconditional love is loving without a desired outcome, okay? And it's really hard to offer care um, without receiving thank you, without receiving eye contact, without receiving uh, something in return. We are deeply socialized with the psycho-spiritual world that relationships should be 50-50. How many times we've heard that? And if it's not balanced, then you got to go. And you really quickly realize that unconditional love says the opposite. If it's unbalanced, I will bring balance to it. If it's wobbly, I will, I will put an extra napkin under the table. I will be the one to go under the table and put something there so he balances it out. 
you know. And of course, the love between a parent and a child is different than partners who are just getting to know each other or friends who are just deepening friendship. But with the friends that I have that I've known for five, seven, eight, or 15 or 20 years, uh, you really quickly realize that some seasons and sometimes for a whole year, it's very unbalanced and you're not holding out. You're not blaming, shaming, pulling away, punishing, because you are really actively developing unconditional love. So you are the one who's asking the waiter, can I have an extra napkin without even before they even bring your drinks or your food to the table and the table's wobbly? You immediately put the napkin under there. Or your friend is arriving at the restaurant and you are under the table putting a napkin there and you don't care. You don't care. You are, you're unafraid. You're unbothered. You're just doing it because the there's no desired outcome. The outcome is peace. How do I bring about more peace into the world? How can this exchange be a ripple of, of care? And I have been really deepening that, that skill set, that awakefulness and that realization in my heart and how I care for the unhoused uh, youth, for the homeless youth that I, that I uh, work with on Fridays here in Los Angeles. And the patients in a hospital now, it's an, on a whole nother level of offering care without ever seeking an outcome, you know, because oftentimes these patients, the resolution for their experience is death. And because we are in a death phobic culture, we don't see death as part of life. Do you, do you feel that? Do you understand? We don't see death as part of life. We see death as something separate from life. That disconnect, that lack of merger and understanding that death is part of life. Now that I'm really having these realizations, and I'm not, I'm not yet fully landed in that death is part of life. Therefore, it's a natural process. I'm not there 24-7. Don't fucking get me wrong, bitch. You know, don't. There are, there's a lot, there's a lot. Most of my days, I'm in complete argument with the Lord of death. Most of the days I'm pleading the Lord of death to go away, to not hover over my family, to not come for my friends, to not come for you guys, you know, to not come for my patients, to not come for the homeless youth. You know, I'm constantly begging, making offerings, please go away. Please go away. And then there's moments of realization that I am in direct contact with the, with the Lord of Death saying, I understand that you're a natural process, that you're part of this life, that this is happening because you are an integral part of it, you know? Um, so unconditional love and all of that. We kind of, I kind of get got carried away a little bit, but that's um, really important thing to land and maybe have some reflection in how am I offering unconditional love? Because it's different from circumstantial love. Circumstantial love is do this, you get this. When you treat me like this, I'll treat you like that. If you treat me like this, I'll treat you like this. Unconditional love is. Hey, I ordered you uh, 
ham and cheese croissant and a cappuccino. You know, here's your, um, I brought your bag down. I did laundry for you, you know. Um, here's your um, electrolytes for the day, you know. Like all these little moments, I was like, wow, it does take me energy to do that. And here's a twisted part about it. It doesn't take energy for me to do that for my patients and the homeless youth and friends. It does take energy for me to do that sometimes with the closest people in my life, you know, the closest, the most, the top five there. I will sometimes unconsciously hold back, you know, and, res and resist the natural flow of love. Um, so I hope that's waking something up in you, realizing something. And now, <clears throat> one thing that's very, very important, what this walk was, it was very foundational was setting of intention. Like when we set an intention for an action, there is a possibility of realization. When we do actions without intention, when we're not setting an intention for an action, especially if it's seven hours of walking, uh, it could just become kind of, it could just quickly become mindless. It could just quickly become uh, robotic. You can quickly walk through three different uh, small villages in Spain. You can quickly go in and out of these churches and 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 cathedrals and small little stone chapels and ritual places and be fully desensitized by it. But if you set your intention at the top of your day that I want to love and I want to love all of life and whatever is unloved to make itself known to me. I want to experience the grief of the death of my mother in ways that I have never experienced before. I want to set my myself free. Like you can, I'm giving you some of the things that I would say, but starting your day with intention, going about life with intention. And, and maybe this conversation will inspire you to, will inspire you to start going on long walks as a proc, as a practice of purification, as a practice of realization, right? So the moment I set the intention, you know, let the grief, wash over me let the parts of me that are unloved let the parts of of me that i am afraid of ashamed of that i hate that i am disgusted by let them all make itself known to me so i can love it so i can become whole you know so i can love the entire process that makes up sa not just a single not just small aspects of ourselves and if you really notice how much of your daily life it's you arguing with the parts of you that you don't like. How much conflict, how much inner war you are with, how much of a war you have with parts of yourself that you don't like, you know, um, certain habits, certain belief systems, certain traits. So the, pra the practice of loving yourself whole um, is so, it, it is literally, you know, such a, I mean, one may say it's the greatest journey we'll, we'll, we'll do because it, it does require you to accept all the unskillful, harmful behaviors that you've had. It requires you to accept the mistakes you've made, you know, um, that. And when I prompted my day with that intention, 
my darlings, this is the most awful in one side and impeccable from another side. And thank goodness from another side is the seven hours a day of walking were low key. Mostly, I can actually tell you guys, honestly, it was like 60 to 70% really uncomfortable. You know, I was hoping that would be like, you know, maybe 30 to 40%, you know, and, and, and this is a good opportunity for you to prompt yourself. How much of your day do you feel uncomfortable in your body? You know, how much of your day do you feel discomfort? How much of your day do you are running away from unpleasant feelings? How much of your day are you actively distracting yourself from the present moment? Because it requires you to feel, it requires you to, to um, meet it and engage with it and live as an open door, not as a closed door. You know, because when we live as a closed door, the feelings are constantly banging at the door to come in to just say hi. They just want to say hi. Um, but even the greeting of the hi, we're like, no, je can't. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to talk to anybody. The house is closed. Do not come here. We're closed. Business is closed. We don't know when we're reopening, honey. So go away. So those seven hours a day matched with that intention created a cascading effect of processing all the things that I had in process, meeting parts of myself that I was actively, even doing the life that I do here, which I have a very strict regime of um, serving, teaching, caring for myself, you know? My loves, let's take a quick break from the episode because I got to share something with you that is delicious, mind-blowing, and and kind of really sweet of a surprise for me. Backstory, which probably all of you know um, by now, I have struggled with acne scars um, for as long as I can remember. And I say struggle as in, I've always wanted to not have them, you know? And of course, cystic acne is gone, which is wonderful, but the scars are there and they're deep and they are, um, they're, they're always like, good morning, Sa, how are you, darling? Nice to see you again. And I have spent so much money trying to get rid of these scars. I have, you know, literally gotten, I mean, I, it's pointless to mention, I have done pretty much all the things available under the sun to be able to change the the texture of my skin to be able to say goodbye to the acne scars for me for me because for you if you think i don't look cute with my acne scars uh it is a reflection of the quality of your mind uh, okay let's just put that into perspective for a second so anyways i get sent i get sent a lot of products all the time people that want to participate in podcasts, people that want me to talk about their products. And I'm extremely fierce about the brands and the products that I talk about because I have to be a trustworthy source for my community, my students. And so anyways, I have uh, I have found, no, this product found me and I'm so glad it did. It's called One Skin. And the product's necessarily not built for 
acne scars. It's built for a variety of other different benefits, uh, which I don't need them right now, or I don't think I will need them because I'm fine um, with the way my skin is aging. However, if you're interested in transforming your aging process in a way that is healthier looking or more relaxed looking or whatever it may be for you. The point is, I want to share with you this product founded by four female PhD level longevity scientists with over 15 years of experience studying the biology of aging. The product that I'm holding in my hand right now is called One Skin OS One Face. I wash my face and I put this on and I put sunscreen on and that is all. And in one week, honey, I swear to you, it is wild. The, compl the, the complexity now, the texture of my skin is changing so much. I'm like, this can't be true, you know, because I always dream of a product like this. But hey, now it is here, you know. And unlike most skincare products on the market, one skin works deeper than the surface level. And it's designed to promote healthier skin from the inside out. And check this out. In an independent 12-week clinical study, OS1 Face, which is the product that I'm holding in my hand, the product that I'm talking about, demonstrated uh, efficacy by strengthening the skin's barrier and significantly reducing visible signs of aging. In the study, they were able to have these epic results. Wrinkles were diminished in 87% of users. And 95.5% of the people who were in this, in this study and this clinical trial experienced improved firmness. One Skin is for everyone that wants to prevent or reverse the signs of aging with groundbreaking approach. One Skin addresses skin health at the molecular level targeting the root cause of aging so skin behaves, feels, and appears younger. It's time for you to get to experience a new skin health routine. And I'm offering you, as a listener of the podcast, a 15% discount when you use code capital S-A-H, my first name, you should know by now, at oneskin.co. That's 15% off at oneskin.co with code S-A-H. And it's O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O. And the code is capital S-A-H. And enjoy, my darling, because we only have one body, one skin, and only you can choose to make it better. Age healthy with one skin. My loves, I don't want to take too much time away from the episode, so just a quick break to give you some delicious information and something that's really exciting me. Listen, we have launched the Somatic Activated Healing Membership and the benefits that the members are sharing with us is so delicious. They're saying it's reduced depression and anxiety, reduced physical pain and sluggishness. I can't even say that word. Increased a sense of resilience, increased joy and inspiration hey we love that improved physical health and energy levels improved mental health and clarity and it's deepened their connection to authenticity and self-expression so all this a dream come true because i've always wanted to be able to have a sacred school meet temple meets dance floor so all of this coming together that's what the somatic activated healing membership is all about it's helping us 
take responsibility for what we're carrying and time to say goodbye to the emotional baggage and time to say hello open heart because you know the body keeps the score as we've heard this the body holds the imprints of our past experiences and unless you have the tools and the time to process your painful experiences as they happen it leaves an emotional residue alive in your body which then turns your body into inflammation then turns your mind into chaos therefore closes your heart listen and i've gone through this experience of carrying emotional baggage a massive heavy load for so much of my life that it was like making my body i mean the symptoms were wild chest pains cystic acne gut issues depression anxiety addiction suicidal ideation you name it all of these things were symptoms of unprocessed emotional baggage. So in the Somatic Activated Healing Membership, you have access to a multitude of practices, including the ultimate mind-body spiritual workout, which is what you're seeing me in the doing that that looks like a, a, a sort of a regular dance practice, but there's an entire mathematical process happening behind, which I can't wait for you to experience it for yourself. In the membership, you also have access to um, guided meditations, master classes, spiritual talks, courses, and live Dharma workshops with me once a month. Maybe I forgot to say this, but there is somatic activated healing method practices every single day, live with teachers from all over the world, honey. And these are epic teachers who I have certified myself, so I fully trust them to deliver this message, to deliver this method. What we also have in the membership is a community page where you get to engage with other members. And we also have weekly inspirational prompts to get you going. So with the whole thing, this entire, you know, uh, uh, dance floor meets temple meets sacred school, the combination of all this together will give you the support to have a robust and foundational spiritual practice that will, that could literally radically change your life. And you've heard the members, what they're saying, that it's working. So take it from what they're saying, honey. In any case, I love you very much. I hope you keep enjoying the podcast and we're giving you a seven-day free trial to the membership. So get in there. The link is in the show notes. And um, I hope I get to see you on the dance floor. Big love to you. Peace. Very strict regimen that I have to be able to put out this amount that I put out into the world. Even though I have this strict regimen, I was still noticing in the walk how much I was still running away from feeling, you know, I would still go to the fridge and eat three or four blackberries when I would unconsciously be unaware of a big feeling in the body. You know, I would still go outside and have a cigarette if the grief was disorienting. You know, I would go on a hike. I would go to this. I would call a friend. I would clean. I would do laundry. I would move things around. I would start a new thing. I will make a video. There were so many ways that even someone like us here who are the, who are determined to become free, who are determined to liberation, who are determined to, to, be, to be of service no matter what, how much of our lives outside of pilgrimage, outside of intentionally walking ourselves whole, intentionally walking ourselves to the depth of our grief, we are still distracting, numbing. It looks different these days. It's a little holier. You know, it's a little bit more, um, it's a little um, 
less intoxicating, you know, um, but still shows up, still shows up. So that was a very alarming truth. I had organized these podcasts that I wanted to listen to, these audiobooks, these, um, uh, yeah, podcasts and audiobooks and, and music. I had even made a playlist before I left. And really quickly, I realized that I had no need for any of it. Because if I plugged in an audiobook, if I plugged in a podcast, if I plugged in a song, I would miss the opportunity to be with what was coming up. And because I was unwilling to go, uh, to come home, you know, more troubled, you know, more, uh, more disoriented, more disconnected, uh, less in my body. I was unwilling to come home, um, less realized um, than when I left. I made that deliberate choice. And it was very interesting how much of the days were silent. I would put on music around like 4 p.m. When I was like, I needed a boost of energy for the last two hours of walk, you know. And when I was walking in those two hours at the end of the day, that's when I was practicing the somatic postures, you know, to keep me in my body, to keep me energized, to keep me uh, present. But throughout the process, I was just tracking how many disturbing thoughts would visit my mind and how clearly um, there were not a direct depiction of me or my life, you know? And this is very, it's very important that we are, um, so often we are caught up with the, with the, we're we're so often like relating to our thoughts as direct direct perception of who we are and what our lives are and how people see us and how we see the world. And the process of being a somatic practitioner, of being a mystic, of walking the path of liberation, it's really important to know that thoughts are not personal, that feelings are impersonal, you know. Then nothing is personal because what is it personal to if you are an ongoing process? How can things have direct, how can things have a direct point of contact if that point of contact is always moving? Does that make sense? There's nothing to point to, you know? There's nothing to point to because there's nothing about you that is um, unchanging. You know, there's nothing about you that isn't in constant, rapid movement. Does that make sense? Once that clicks in a really beautiful way, the way you relate to disturbing thoughts, um, you will quickly have a, it, it, will, it will quickly relax you to know that it's just passing. And who knows if it's something to do with you and who cares, you know? Um, and who cares? No problem. No problem. No problem. You know? Um, and then the unpleasant feelings became such a such a an engaging practice, right? Because anytime I notice myself, even for check this out, even for a few seconds, anytime I gave energy to understanding air, big air quotes, air, air quotes here, big like air quotes. Like 
understanding a thought and trying to see its reasoning for it. Anytime I gave any energy to try to reason and engage and talk back with a destructive thought, I was missing a very important experience of going to the feeling in the body and dropping out of that story and going to the feeling. Because every time you relate to a destructive thought, every time you engage with it, every time you talk back with it, every time you really like give attention to not in in um not in the with a lot of your awareness but the attention of being consumed and believing it every time you believe a destructive thought you're missing the opportunity to go to the place where you can actually unbind yourself from these kinds of thoughts which is in the body when you can go to the emotion in the body that is uh, wrapped up and tied with the thought in the mind, those thoughts may visit you again, but now they won't have the same weight as they've had in the past. Are we communicating? Does that land? So it's really important that you don't miss a moment. You don't spend a moment believing a destructive thought, but instead directly into the body and greeting the feeling in the body. And as I was walking, I realized something that the way I have neglected my feelings in my body was because of the ways that I have experienced neglect in the past. People neglected me. So then I was doing the same that I knew. So I was neglecting my feelings. If you treat your feelings as children, why would you neglect them if they're calling you for they want they want to be fed? Be closed, be warm, feel your touch, receive a hug. Why would you not pick them up? Why would you offer them what, it, what they need? So if you trace back in the ways that you have been neglected, rejected, um, you know, and so many of us have, um, unfortunately, our parents were socialized to let us cry it out. And we know that crying it out is a really traumatic experience for a child, you know. Um, there's a lot of research in that space that we can now look to. So if you've had that in your in your life, which most of us have, some of our parents had to work multiple jobs, some of our parents were really busy or they were alcoholics or drug addicts or whatever it may be, everyone's got a past, right? But if you've experienced neglect in your life, you are unconsciously neglecting your most intimate relationship, which is you and your feelings. Are we communicating? You know, that was like one of the biggest things I wanted you guys to take away. I'm only on like, I have 40 points to talk about, but this is not point number two. <laughs> We're going to have to do this again and again. Um, but that, when I had that realization, I was like, oh shit, I'm just doing the thing. I'm just recreating harm because that's what I know. You know, that's not all I know, but that's something, that's a curriculum that I know really well. If I've been rejected, I know how to reject. Wonderful. How fucked up is that? And then in that moment, I was like, oh my God, no. The most intimate relationship I have in the process that makes up Sa is my feelings. And when I engage with the stories about my feelings, I am losing an opportunity to make contact with my, my children, my beloveds, you know, 
my emotions, my feelings. And I was like, oh shit, here it is. And that really quickly became uh, an honest, um, a very honest understanding. And then I didn't allow myself to dwell and like, oh, mommy and daddy didn't care for me. You know, daddy was doing this. Mommy was doing that. that, that, that. I didn't go into the blame victim story. I didn't do that. I was just radically, really quickly accepted that things happened the way they did. And the time was now for me to do something about it, which meant be with your feelings as they come. Feel them right here, right now, you know? And never miss an opportunity to feel. Never miss an opportunity to feel your feelings. Because if you do, you are unconsciously perpetuating a cycle of neglect. Isn't that crazy? I don't know if it's landing for you guys the same way that it landed for me. But when I when I was walking and that landed, I was like, okay, I deserve a Diet Coke and a cigarette, bitch. The next shop I saw, I gave myself a Diet Coke, a cup of ice. And in the walk, you couldn't, you couldn't get like organic tobacco or nothing. So it was just like camel lights, give me some camel lights, bitch. So that's what I did. That's what she did, you know? And then I'm there having these realization and journaling. Oh my God, this is crazy. I've been perpetuating the cycle of harm because I'm not feeling my feelings. Whoa. Okay. Boom. Woke up out of that. Very important thing. If when that lands for you really deeply, oof. And then here's on the other side of it too. Anytime I was talking back to a disturbing narrative in my mind, not being with the feeling in my body, and I would see a, 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 another pilgrim walking by me, it didn't matter if there were a saint. It didn't matter if it was Mary Magdalene reincarnated walking that fucking path. I had some judgment. I had some degree of criticism. If you're not disentangling from disturbing narratives in your mind, if you're not meeting the feelings in your body, the proximity of those who are around you, they will also get the spew. They will get the blame. You know, so the criticism in others, it was very quickly a reflection of me being uncomfortable in my body. I mean, we know this. We know that all judgment is a reflection of our mind. And it was so interesting to be in a holy pilgrimage with, with, you know, yes, the majority of people were there in a sort of a marathon. Let's get drunk and meet people and like, oh, my God. And then there's people with the same intention um, as as us, as me, um, to heal, to transform, to be in the grief, to be in the mess, to fall apart gracefully. And it didn't matter. There was always something that I felt compelled and I felt so truthful and I felt so like, yes, my judgment is true, you know? How often we believe our criticisms about people as the label that they are. And we have, there's no room for them to surprise you. There's no room for them to, to um, unbind a, a, away from that sticker that you placed on them without that scarlet letter that we, that we put on, on, on people who come out of, of, of the correctional facilities, you know, like, Wow. I was like, okay, cool. And then there's another thing that I realized. 
people that annoy that are annoying that are doing annoying things and we know this hurt people hurt people but people who do annoying things in the world what if we always saw annoyingness or annoyance as a reflection of their hurt that would always crack us open to care to be compassionate like what if someone being annoying and and doing things that like even chewing with their mouth open which triggers me you know or walking and dragging their feet you know or like using the the walking sticks in a way that doesn't make any sense like things like this are we communicating things that are like so stupidly annoying you know walking with fucking sandals when it's like a rocky field you could have fucking bought shoes karen like what the fuck you know like things that are like so annoying to me i would always see it as a as a a quality of someone who's disembodied and that disembodiment was a reflection of the weight of the trauma that they're carrying so that's why they were propelled to not be in their body and chew with their mouth open you know and drag their feet on the walk and talk really loud and be on FaceTime in a restaurant you know and use the walking sticks like a you know whatever so all those annoying things and i'm not talking about big annoying you saw the level of annoyance that i'm talking about like very subtle very very like low key stupid kind of shit but i'm i'm tracking it in a way that you can understand my inner mechanics as well so you can see yourself in what i'm saying okay that i saw oh wow that is a reflection of someone who's disembodied and why are they disembodied not to annoy me not to annoy the room they're disembodied because they're hurt because they don't have a community like we do they don't have a practice like we do they don't know how to come home to their bodies they don't know how to how to how to be with their feelings and i was like oh damn revelation i'm taking that home you know very important very important one and then there was another layer if we're if we're now building blocks right if we're now building on everything there's another layer which was this there was i briefly read a book about a hawaiian doctor um hawaiian psychotherapist i'm paraphrasing this whole thing and and it was digested through me so i'm going to give you what i heard okay what i understood from it there was a, there was a hawaiian doctor uh psychologist healer who healed an entire um um mental institution an entire uh psychiatric hospital of people who were in the hospital and they were also people who were with with a background in with criminal activity so they were in heightened altered mental states and they were also in the psychiatric hospital right so the the weight of their trauma was so severe you can imagine so there was this hawaiian doctor who healed all these patients in the course of like 5 to 7 years or something without ever seeing any of any of them how did he do that by understanding that everything that meets your eye and everything that is in contact with you is part of you 
Now, let me break this down a layer deeper. He would go to the file of the patient and he would read the, the patient's history as if it was his own. And after he would read the patient's file as if it was his own, um, we should look the name up of this doctor so we can give him like proper credit. Uh, I think it's who Lan or something. It's, it's vaguely coming into my mind. Anyways, and I'm paraphrasing the story, but I'm giving you the juice. I'm giving you the, the real important stuff here. And so he read the files of these patients and he would read it as if he was his own. And then he would step into their shoes and then he would whisper the Hawaiian mantra. I'm sorry, please forgive me. Thank you. And I love you. I'm sorry, please forgive me. Thank you. And I love you. There's different variations of this. Sometimes people say that I love you before the thank you. It doesn't matter. And he would say that as the person who had committed the, the criminal activities, as the person who was in an altered mental state, and then he would whisper that in direct orientation towards those who that person had caused harm. And he would do, that was the only practice he did. That was the only practice he did. And through that process, all of these people became healed and the psychiatric hospital closed down. So I heard that and I, I, I read this book, um, parts of it. I, I didn't really enjoy the writing so much, but I enjoyed the story. And um, um, anyways, it's it's a it's an important thing to know. Maybe I can look up the name of the book for you guys real quickly. Um, let me see. And one second. I don't fucking know the name of the book. I have to like take my phone off airplane mode, and we're not doing that. You figure it out. So here's what I was doing on the walk now. Everyone that I saw that I perceived as discombobulated, everyone that I perceived as annoying, everyone that I perceived as disembodied, everyone that I perceived as whatever shape or form of being, of having these annoying traits, I would stop and I would merge with them and I would then offer, I would plead in their behalf as them, I'm sorry, please forgive me, thank you, and I love you. I'm sorry, please forgive me, thank you, and I love you. And bitch, I gotta fucking tell you, I witnessed some crazy fucking shit. Like, obviously... The, the the miracles were taking place inside of me regularly, right? Where my mindset totally changed. My perception of them totally changed. And also what was alarming was all of a sudden, some of these people's postures would change. You know, the way they care themselves would change. It was almost like I had lifted something up for them. You know, and I know this sounds twisted and sort of like God complex and Messiah complex, but I'm telling you something that is real, that this doctor has witnessed uh, change. And I also witnessed take place in front of my very own eyes. So what if when we are going through life and we're engaging with people, we could step into their shoes and 
plead forgiveness for the harm that they have caused, but you're doing as them. Does that make sense? You know? And it was like, oh my God, alarming. The, the, whoa, all of a sudden I was like immersed in reality. So that then leads me to another point, deeply feeling, deeply interconnected with all of life. I've briefly shared this, but there's an experience that I've had. So I'm giving, I'm trying to, the way I organize this list too, which we're definitely not going to get through all of it. Um, I try to organize it in like one thing leads to another, like kind of a building block. So there's like more linearity for you guys, but you know, ain't nothing linear, honey. So like, fuck it, give it up. Um, And the, um, oh, there was one moment that I had just like practiced, um, and someone mentioned Tonglen. Yes, it's very much in the Vajrayana Buddhist practice. It's very much in the in the tantric Buddhist path. This practice of exchanging yourself uh, for the other, taking the pain of another, purifying your heart, and offering the antidote. It's very much there too. I just really enjoy the simplicity of the Hawaiian mantra and how that doctor explained the healing process that actually took place with evidence. I found it fascinating to have that to know that. We know this stuff. We know this stuff that everything that meets our eyes, every that we're deeply interconnected, we're deeply inter- interdependent. We know this stuff in our hearts, but to actually have someone tracking uh, healing taking place in people that are deemed lost cases, people who we see as bad, as wrong, as undeserving, and to see their realization, the change taking place in them, in their lives through a series of events, it's really mind-blowing to me um so all this all these realizations are happening right day by day you know hour after hour and i remember like in in week two late week two right we're entering to like week three i remember um having done this practice and having had these realizations and i was still practicing this really really strongly and I, I'm walking to a beautiful forest. It felt like an elf forest. It felt like a, you know, a Lord of the Rings kind of forest. It felt like a, it felt the story, the, the, the forest felt magical. It already had, like, as I was walking into it, I was already like, oh my God, it feels magical in here. And as I'm walking through the forest, I, I start to feel and not in the creepy way, but I start to feel like the nature was like looking back at me. I started to feel like the trees were like looking back at me and communicating with me. And I felt observed. I felt witnessed. And I've never had that real that that level of intimacy with with nature before. I love the jungle. I love the trees. I love nature. You know, I love all and and I love it, but I didn't have this connection to it. It's different than like, you know, loving nature and feeling like, oh, I'm part of nature, but not feeling like I'm not understanding it at a visceral level. And in that forest, after I had done all this scrubbing, I had this 
whoa, nature is looking back at me. She listens to me. She hears me. She sees me. I'm being witnessed. I'm being held. It was really eye-opening. It was like, oh my God. And it was, it was that moment that brought forth the realization and the remembrance of deep interconnection, right? And I, and I was talking to a friend of mine. I was like, you know, we need to re-indigenize Buddhism. And she's like, what do you mean? Um, I was like, I need to know that the Buddhist path has reverence to mother nature in ways that people who are just coming onto the path, people who are just curious about the Dharma are, um, are, um, I can appreciate and have reverence to it. And she was like, Sa, my darling, the problem is not, it's not that the Buddhist, it's not that the Buddha himself or the Buddhist um, true lineage doesn't have that. It's that the people who have interpreted the canonical text have misinterpreted and removed nature from it. Because remember what the Buddha did, the first thing he did as soon as he became enlightened, I was like, remind me, maybe I forgot. He put his hands on the ground, both of his hands on the ground. And then he said, and then Mara, the demon, said, you say you're enlightened? Who is your witness? Mother nature is my witness. And I was like, oh, shit. That's right. So the first words out of this man's mouth after being fully liberated was mother nature. Mother nature, mother nature, mother nature. I was like, whoa, okay, I guess I guess we don't really need to re-indigenize Buddhism. We just have to remember the truth of it. We just have to like make contact with um the 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 its true meaning, its true purpose, right? And then she also went as far as saying that what if the concept, this is Maria Francisca, she's a poet, she's a fashion designer, she's a dear, dear friend of mine. Um and she says, what if the concept of Buddha nature that we have in Buddhism, what if Buddha nature is an aspect of mother nature? And I was like, oh, wow, that's some good, good juice, honey. And it was so beautiful to be talking to her on my headphones, wearing a rain jacket. While it's raining, I'm wearing shorts so I can feel the rain in my uh, legs. And I'm stepping in puddles because I love that. And I'm muddy and I'm talking to her and having these realizations as she's talking. And I'm feeling the rain as like the rain is alive. And I'm watching the trees drinking the water from the rain and receive its nutrients and then offer something to us. It was this like deep psychedelic experience, but bitch, she was not an acid. She was not a mushroom. She was lucid as fuck. She was awake. You know, I was just deeply present to what's already here. And I was like, oh my God, we need to talk about that, honey. <laughs> we need to talk about that. So um, I want you to experience that. 
I want you to walk yourself to a point of exhaustion and, and walk yourself during that walk. It's a holy walk. It's a walk of purification, of transformation, of healing, of embodiment. And then come up to a point where you lay in the forest and you feel held and you look up and you feel seen, you know, without the, the ways that we have been socialized to feeling seen only by human eyes. Can I be seen by nature's witnessing style, which is different than human to human? No. And something beautiful will happen there once you land at that depth of presence that you can be witnessed um, by nature in this way. And then for the sake of time, I want to invite this, not back, this has been the backbone of everything, but just kind of anchor this in a little bit more. The experience of falling apart without having anyone around me trying to fix me and resolve me and empower me was transformative. And hear those words again. The experience of falling apart and not have anyone around me wanting to resolve me, to fix me, and to empower me was the medicine that I needed. So that walk was exactly that. During the entire walk, I had one moment where someone stopped to be with me as I was sobbing, snot coming down, crying out loud. I would sit on the side of the, of the path and just fall apart. There was one time. And the person who stopped was someone who, guess what? I had been judging for a couple of days, honey. She had been getting the poison. But guess what? She was an angel. She was a true angel. And all she offered me was tissues and a shoulder. No words. No empowerment. No fixing. No resolving. And I'm learning this so deeply now, caring for patients at the hospital. It's like, wow. There's nothing, there's, there's, you can't offer fixing resolution empowerment, the empowerment, the, the relaxation, the grace, all of it only comes from them seeing themselves clearly for what the experience is for, for not for what they think it is, you know? Because what we think it is, is resisting what is. And so there is that push. There is that rejection. There is that, I don't like this. But when we can offer a pure perception, a beautiful mirror to someone who's in deep pain, they see for what it is. And when they can see reality for what it is, there's beauty in pain. Are we communicating? Does that land? Because we are seeing reality for what we want it to be. So there's always a low level of resistance, of hurt, of pain, of disagreement, you know? So in that moment, 
during the entire walk, the purpose of it was to just have room to fall apart and not have to show up for any meetings, show up for any anyone or anything, to not have to um, pretend, you know? Because sometimes, even though I'm brutally honest, people can't handle the depth of how full my life is. So then I give them that I'm fine, you know? And it's not... It's not a blunt lie because I do have access to a part of me that's always fine. I have contact with that part of me, you know. But some people, even friends who you are inspired by or who have held you in the past, sometimes they can't even um, hold the depth of it, you know. And I didn't want to be in that exchange with anyone. I wanted to be in an honest exchange with myself and life, which meant. I don't want to have to show up right now. I need this time for myself. I need this time for myself fully, you know? So my hope, my wish is that we all have the opportunity to fall apart gracefully, to fall apart gracefully, to be able to not have anyone around who will try to empower us out of the grief or someone who will empower us to resolve or fix the grief, but someone that could just be with you in it. I was doing an interview for a grief podcast called Dead Talks. Worth a listen. Um, and I... um one of the things that I shared on there was that I wish that we had an opportunity to change, you know, legislation around the, the grieving process for people where people weren't shoved back into work after a week um, or that we had a place in, in society for grieving, that there was like an actual place for us to go and grieve. And it was like a nature center. It was something that was a reminder of the um of the fragility of life. You know, in nature, when you're in direct contact with nature, you're really aware of the grieving process. If you can watch the subtleties, you know, of like, wow, every day something in the forest dies. And that which dies nurtures and uh, not nurtures, but nourishes the next life. And we don't have access to that because the way we're treating the dead, putting them in boxes away from the earth, you know, there's no offering of like when this body dies, I don't become an offering for anything else. You know, does that make sense? And there's something that happens at a very subtle level. And the podcast that I did with Sarah Wu, we talk about this in detail. She brings this into my mind stream and I was like blown away by it, you know, that we don't become an offering. And because of that, there is like a low level state of suffering already happening in our lives because we know that when we die um, through a mystical and even through an archaeological lens, we have always become an offering. We have always gifted our bodies to the earth but in the ways that we're dying now the death culture that we have now we are not offering ourselves back to earth 
you know, and there's something um, at a subtle level, something for you, us all to explore, you know, the, the most important thing that happened in the walk was the realization that I will always be in the grief process, you know, and all the layers that come with it and all the layers that come with it. And one thing that I, um, that I did in the walk that brought up a lot of controversy, um, me and my dad did, which I'm sure you guys have seen was we put stickers of my mom, mother's face throughout the walk. The most interesting part about that is that the people who don't leave their homes, people who don't even have a passport, people who are just sitting at home, criticizing other people on social media, they were the ones who were like actively in a comment section, like shit talking. But the people who are the pilgrims who are walking the walk, I get messages regularly of people who are walking the walk and so grateful to see my mother's face during the walk. And, and I get that there's like environmental implications about it, but to call that littering, to call that uh, vandalizing, some of these are some of the languages that I, I've had to uh, listen. Um, it was really alarming. And then what did that show me? It showed me that people were triggered with the fact that I actually did something with my grief, that I actually walked my grief, that I actually did grieve the death of my love of my beloved mother that I actually didn't just go back to work that I actually didn't drink myself into delirium that I actually chose to feel the despair and do something about it and do something with it you know and I think that was very triggering for people and then in the walk one of the most amazing things that my dad and I realized was like the stickers have become these grief portals for people you know it was so weird. One day we were arriving in this little um, coffee shop after walking for miles and miles without um, any place to get a coffee or water or chocolate or a piece of cheese or anything. And we overheard these two people talking and they were speaking in Portuguese. They were like, have you been seeing this woman throughout the trail? I wonder who she is. She looks like some kind of a saint. I want to look her up when I'm done with the walk. And I look at my dad and I'm like, dad, don't say anything. Entertain it as if she is a saint. Let's canonize her right now. Let's go to the sanctification of our mother and your wife. Let's literally sanctify this bitch right now. And I was like, we brought up in Portuguese. So I was like, yeah, maybe she is a saint, you know, Um they're like, yes, there's something about her eyes. There's something about the stickers. When I see it, I already feel better. Something in me happens. I feel something different just looking at her stickers. And I'm looking at my dad and my dad could not help himself. He literally could not help himself. He's like, it's my wife. I put the stickers. I was like, dad, like allow the sanctification, allow the, allow mom to become a saint right here, right now. Allow that that to be like something that you and I truly witness take place in humans without us having to say mom is a saint. And 
Anyways, that did happen. She's still definitely a saint. Yes, 100%. And because the way that it happened, it was so like, we were like moments away from like walking away from total strangers and having left them with the, with the mystery that who is this saintly figure that is throughout the trail everywhere. So yes, some people had shit to say about the stickers and other people had these kind of experiences with it where their minds were blown, where their hearts were open. And then guess what happened? I met this, um, I met many people who they were, they would, uh, you know, ask what we're doing or they would be walking with us. Mostly I have to say, I have to say with us, but really they were walking with my dad uh, and I would be like behind tracking or I would pass them and they would see me putting the sticker. Anytime they would see us, see us putting the stickers in, in, in different places, they would start crying. And what did that remind me of? What was that most alarming thing about that was the fact that they didn't take the time to be in their grief, that they quickly moved through life, that they quickly moved on, that they didn't celebrate the life of the beloved, that they didn't, you know, experience the despair of the longing for touch, for voice for a kiss for an embrace you know or for their food my mom was an incredible cook she made delicious food all the time all the time and i will never eat that again isn't that strange like i will never eat that again that's so strange think about it like that so there is the despair of that and i don't want to miss the opportunity to feel that deeply you know, um, so the stickers were an interesting journey and it, they continue because people are still sending me messages regularly that they're seeing the stickers, you know, and my dad wants to go back to it next year and actually build a shrine, get permission from the Spanish government um, to actually build a shrine for her. And it's interesting because she was Italian, not Spanish, but I don't know why that was the place that we went and the depth of, of what happened. Oh, one thing I forgot to say that it's massive is I've never seen my dad cry in such a way like this. That walk cracked him open in a way. He's never going to be the same ever, ever, ever. You know, the grief will always be part of his experience. And for that, I'm very grateful because this was a man that was historically very strong, you know, who felt uncomfortable when my mother was pronounced dead at the hospital. And I literally went delirious. I started crying so loud, so lost. I I, I went into, into a, a really, really debilitating state. And then I noticed how uncomfortable it made him feel. Now he knows that is beautiful. That there is beauty in despair. There is beauty in longing. That there is beauty in missing. You know, your mom, your beloved. You know. So, I think the last thing I want to offer is that the walk, the grief walk really showed me the importance of simplifying my life. 
really simplifying my life, simplifying the friends, simplifying the stuff, simplifying the work, simplifying, simplifying, simplifying. And you know what that means for each of you. You know what that looks like to all of you in your own lives, you know? I've seen people that are doing or that did the somatic activated healing teacher training and taking out boxes and boxes and bags and bags of clothes and things from their garage and cleaning their fucking house and all this shit. And that is the depth of, 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 of simplification that we need to have in our lives, you know, like really, like we don't need the extra stuff, you know, we don't need the extra stuff. And the extra stuff is a, is unfortunately a reflection of the stuff that we're unwilling to acknowledge in here, you know, it's really a, uh, twisted mirroring there um yeah so i think i'll leave it at this i think there is a lot uh a lot to sit with from this information and i think um i think the you know like i said the biggest lesson i've i've learned and and uh sean corn said such beautiful words yesterday she's a friend of mine too which is which is amazing she said the grief uh, doesn't end it just gets different and and the walk was the grief walk was for sure um a clear a clear 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 knowing of how moment to moment day by day it changed you know there were some days that I couldn't listen to um my mom's favorite song and because it was it was just too triggering and or I would listen and would it would like not activate longing and sadness but it would activate like anger towards the doctors towards family towards all these layers upon layers um so I would turn off the music and I would be with the anger but the way I have socialized that song was like, I would put it on and I would immediately go for the longing, go for the sadness, being a vulnerable, open-hearted state, um, which it wasn't. That song was a catalyst for all the, all the layers of the grief, you know? If I can leave you guys with something is don't miss an opportunity to touch the ungrieved grief. Don't miss an opportunity to visit a cemetery, you know, to celebrate your beloved's birthday, you know, to buy their favorite chocolate cake and light up a candle and sing them happy birthday or make their favorite food and set two plates on the table and serve them, you know. And once you're done eating, you take their food and you dig a hole in the garden and you you put it there. Don't miss the opportunity because you're going to be missing a really beautiful part of life, you know, a tremendously beautiful part of life. I got to know my dad in an entire new way. 
Like my brother and sister are low key jealous of how close my dad and I are now. <laughs> you know, because we did that thing together. We did that crazy 32 day thing together. You know, we did it. My dad still wears all the bracelets. All of them. He still has like all these bracelets from the walk. It's so cute. Yeah. I'll leave it at that. What did you think of this episode? I hope you loved it. And listen, if you loved it, if you loved this style of material coming from me, which is a Dharma workshop, it's very much a teaching. It's very much lessons. Uh, of course, it's it's stories and lessons. And in this context of a Dharma workshop in the membership portal, it's very much come and learn some deep shit that you can apply to your life. If you love this, I do a live Dharma workshop on Zoom once a month for my community members of the Somatic Activated Healing Membership. The details to join are all in the show notes. Head over there, or the link is in my bio on Instagram. It's everywhere. It's easy to find. I hope I get to see you back here on the podcast, or I get to see your face on Zoom at some point because you've decided to join our community. I love you very much. Take good quick. Take good care. Take good care. I can't even say those words. Squeezing you a big tight hug. Mwah! Peace. Okay, I'm calling on all the home bar enthusiasts right now. Are you ready to create a new kind of bar experience? One that's sober and filled with magic? Let's create a bar that goes beyond the ordinary, honey. And let's infuse it with the spirit of adventure, wellness, and connection. And listen, with that in mind, I need to share with you Anima Mundi's Apothecary and their wonderful brand new Elixir collection. When I saw that, I was like, honey, we got to share this with the community immediately. Even if you're not interested in becoming fully sober, you're sober curious, you just want to, you know, kind of try something different that's still going to make you feel good and sassy and delicious and be like, ooh, I like this. Then this is for you. One of their elixirs that I adore is the Euphoria. It's composed of organic, wild-crafted, and ethically grown botanicals. It's like a, a potion for joy. And trust me when I tell you this, honey, for those of us who are on a sober journey, or if you are on a sober, curious journey, you're going to drink this, honey, and you're going to be like, ooh, girl, what's in this shit? But hey, honey, it's just a bunch of amazing, organically grown botanicals mixed together to give you that, ooh, I like this feeling. You know what I mean? And they have this Elixir Kit Barista Series. It is gorgeous, iconic, legendary. Buy it for your house or also buy it for a friend. That got to be a sweet friend, honey, because that that's going to require your, a little bit of more of an investment. You could also just get each of the elixirs by themselves, right? And it's an invitation for you to become a spiritual mocktail barista in the comfort of your own home. You know, trust me, you're going to love it. Your body is definitely going to love it. Your mind will thank you and your soul will be like, okay, honey, okay, lit. Listen, and I guarantee you that people that try these elixirs 
are going to be like, oh, what's going on, honey, over here? I mean, you got to find a recipe that works, but this is the base of it. It's delicious, amazing, and it's going to get you lit. Are you ready to unlock the magic of this elixir collection, honey? Head over to animamundiherbals.com. I'm going to try to spell that for you. A-N-I-M-A-M-U-N-D-I-herbals.com. Herbals is spelled H-E-R-B-A-L-S.com. Or instead of you listening to spell this, you know, trying to pass the spelling bee over here, go to the link.